Good afternoon. Thanks for joining me today. Today our topic is before you settle that case. And my goal today is to sort of talk through all the things we should be thinking about uh, before we reach settlement. Okay, so what is the stuff that can trip us up at settlement time? And also what are our um, things that we should be thinking about right from the beginning of the case as we sort of push this case towards that final closure. So the topics we're gonna be talking about today are really important topics and this sort of uh, puts a uh, second part, this is almost like the second parter of what we talked about last month, which was talking about exposure evaluations and the different ways we settle cases. So today my goal is to talk to you about, okay, you're ready to close your case, you're ready to settle your matter, uh, you're ready to resolve it, what are the things we have to do uh, and look at? So before you go and settle that case, let's make sure we go through this checklist. And so today I've got to talk about Medicare as a secondary payer obligations. I'm going to talk a little bit about risk transfer and then um, sort of give you some uh, next steps you can take on that. I'm going to talk about release and resignations in New York, which are extraordinarily commonly done, commonplace things. And then I'm going to talk about uh, something that's very unique and special to New York, which is called the Aggregate Trust Fund. So let's dive in. Um, you know, we're going to talk about how the age or the Medicare entitlement of the claimant is going to impact our exposure. Uh, we're going to look at the sort of considerations we should be making right from the beginning. Hey, is there someone else who's responsible for reimbursing me? Is there another tortfeasor? Should I be getting money back? Um, for some of our clients, we have to consider whether or not they're going to have an aggregate trust fund obligation. I'll talk about what that is. And then how can we close this case in such a way that it never comes back and we never see this claimant again? And really, um, how do we make sure we do this in a way that protects our clients going forward? And the release and resignation process will be discussed briefly. So uh, let's dive in. You know my goal is to get you in control of your New York workers' compensation case. Um, we know employers, hey, one of the best, most important things you can do to get in control of these cases, let's have a great return to work program. Let's make sure we're getting great cooperation from our insureds. Uh, and it pays to be decisive in a New York workers' comp case. You do not want to miss those opportunities to resolve or settle your matter. Um, I have to explain, and as we go through this, I have to explain, hey, uh, what, how does this whole system work? Um, remember, it's an administrative law system, uh, which is a fun way of saying it's unconstitutional law, right? So we have to remember that there's other players in this system, and the system itself has its own biases. Uh, my goal is to help um, provide employers and carriers with really practical ways that exposure can be reduced. And we think the best way is to focus on that case closure really from day one. So that's that defend from day one philosophy that we have. So thanks for joining me today as I dive into these topics. These are all related to the way that cases ultimately get resolved and closed out. Um, if you're joining here today, you're part of our webinar community and thanks for joining us. I see we have a lot of people on the line today, which is great. We have a lot of other ways to learn. Um, I've put a copy of our handout in today's materials in the um, webinar handout material. So if you're here live, you can download that right now. Also, please remember, uh, you can always go to our website, loslc.com forward slash publications and download copies of all of our different publications, um, including our handbooks. All of these webinars are also available as podcasts. And if you love podcasts, I keep pitching my partner, Christian Cisson's podcast. It's called Third Fridays. 
because guess what? It's released on the third Friday of the month. And if you really want to take it to the next level in terms of your understanding of New York workers' compensation law, check out his podcast. Each month, um, many months he has guests. He's talking about in-depth issues in workers' compensation. It's just a great way to sort of develop your knowledge. And it's easy to listen to in your car. You can download uh, or subscribe to it through the loslc.com forward slash podcast website, or you can go on any um, podcast service that you're using. It's on iTunes, it's on Amazon, Spotify, all those things. So let me quickly just run through uh, the lowest law firm vision, mission, and values. We, Our goal is to be the go-to firm for our clients nationally, and my goal is to be the absolute best place to work in this industry. Our mission is to get in control of these cases and drive them to closure. We do this through the application of our values, and our values in cases is being creative, being aggressive advocates, being professional, which is that balance to that aggressiveness, and keeping our focus on our clients and um, serving our clients and making sure we're responsive to them. We tailor our defense to what the client is trying to do in their cases. So let's dive into the first of our sort of four topics, and these are the topics, uh, the sections that are really going to impact the way we close cases. So these are things, unfortunately, sometimes are not thought about until the very end of the case. You're ready to resolve your matter, and it's all of a sudden, hey, what's going on with, with my risk transfer? What's going on with this agri-trust fund? What's going on with the release and resignation? But really, we should be thinking about that from the beginning, and that's really our philosophy here. So um, we're going to talk about Medicare as a secondary payer first. I'm going to talk about when Medicare liability impacts our settlements. I'm going to address this over and over again, which is the difference between a Medicare review threshold and our Medicare obligations. And this is the place where I see so many practitioners screwing up um, and they confuse the, what a review threshold is and the actual Medicare secondary payer obligation. Now, uh, everything I'm going to cover in this presentation today is in our handbooks. All of these topics are in there. Uh, and if you need a handbook, uh, let me know. Uh, I, again, I put it in today's um, notes. It's chapter 12 in most of our handbooks, uh, but uh, you can dive in there if you need some more in-depth stuff. Now, our Medicare secondary payer obligation comes from a section of the federal statute, which has been in the statute since the early 80s. It's uh, 42 USC 1395Y, and it essentially just says, uh, and there's a lot of language in there, I'll skip that, it essentially just says that workers' compensation coverage is always primary to any Medicare coverage that could apply. And so if the claimant in a comp case has Medicare entitlement, we should not be putting the cost of that medical uh, treatment that's related to the workers' compensation accident onto Medicare. And that's really it in a nutshell. We really shouldn't be pushing exposure into Medicare. And the uh, statute has some teeth, um, and it was never enforced for a very long time. Uh, and in 2001, um, Medicare issued a memo saying, hey, we're going to start enforcing this secondary payer um, obligation that carriers have. Uh, and the compliance with this uh, obligation is very important because the penalty could be double the amount that Medicare pays. Uh, and who ends up being liable to pay that penalty? Well, it's rarely the claimant because guess what? They spent all the money. You know, they went to Atlantic City and put it all on red. It's gone, right? Uh, commonly, it's going to be the carrier or the employer who are going to be exposed here. Uh, it could also be us, by the way, uh, the defense counsel or any other professional involved with 
administrating or defending the case who doesn't take Medicare's um, uh, sort of uh, obligation into account. Uh, what kind of cases are impacted by these? Well, there really there's two kinds of cases, really two types that we want to focus on. The first is any case where Medicare, uh, and by the way, Medicare also means all these Medicare Advantage plans, these Part C plans that you see being advertised on TV all the time, particularly during enrollment periods. Any case where Medicare's already made a payment of any kind for any treatment that we should have paid for, okay? Or any case that we are closing full and final where maybe Medicare hasn't made a payment yet, but the person's entitled to Medicare, and if we're not careful, there's a potential that the claimant could charge their medical service that we should be obligated to, to Medicare, but they obviously can't charge it to us because we're closing out their case full and final. We're closing medical in their case. So those are the two types of cases that we're interested in. And to make this even more clearly, the first kind of case, I'm gonna always call that a conditional payment case. It's where Medicare already paid for something that we should have paid for. So they paid for it. And now we have to make, make Medicare whole. Okay, that's our obligation. And it's called a conditional payment because that's what Medicare calls it. They say, well, we paid for this medical service, but we only did that conditionally. Uh, and it's conditionally based uh, or um, dependent on your obligation, insurance carrier or employer, to have actually made that payment. You should have made that payment, you silly heart. You should have paid it under the workers' compensation case. Okay, so that the first kind of case that we're going to be thinking about, or the first instance where we're going to be really concerned about Medicare, is where they've already made a payment. And the second type of case is where Medicare might someday, possibly in the future, have to pay for something that we should actually have been responsible for under the workers' compensation action. And that's called a future interest case. So those are the two types of cases, and they are handled a little bit different. So we have to be a little bit mindful about the way this happens. Now, my experience has been typically when the, um, a conditional payment has been made in a workers' compensation case, it's generally done by accident. Usually it's not the claimant being nefarious. It's just that they're so used to whipping out their Medicare card when they go to the doctor. I think they just take their card out, or maybe they don't even, aren't even aware, by the way, that they have Medicare. You know, they have a Part C plan, which is administered by a health insurer or another entity. It doesn't necessarily strike them as a Medicare situation, so they don't really realize it. Okay, so generally we're looking at cases where the person is either Medicare entitled or, or is about to be Medicare entitled. So uh, what is Medicare entitlement? Well, they're over the age of 65 or they've been on Social Security disability for more than 24 months and therefore are likely to be automatically entitled to Medicare. Pretty common scenario. Unfortunately, this is usually our oldest and most difficult to close cases. Why is that? Well, because the claimant's older. Uh, sometimes these cases have lingered for a long period of time and have lingered for such a long period of time that the person has moved from workers' compensation to become Social Security disabled. So now they have a Medicare card. Uh, and sometimes even knowing if the claimant is on Medicare and has that Medicare status, that's a challenge as well. So we have to either ask our own clients and um, you're able to, as an insurance carrier, um, uh, able to do a query match with the Medicare system that's based on social security numbers. Uh, so, so oftentimes our own clients will tell us, hey, by the way, uh, please defend this matter. Just please note the claimant is already Medicare entitled. Every case that I defend, I also issue a Medicare request for information um, to my opposing counsel. And I say, hello, can you please confirm with your uh, client, the alleged injured worker in this workers' compensation matter, that they are not currently entitled to Medicare. 
or Medicare Advantage or any other program that you know we're trying to make sure uh, and ask them to execute an affidavit to tell us that. To, in truth, it's pretty rare uh, that they actually respond uh, to that request for information. Uh, and particularly in New York, it's pretty rare that they respond because they don't even ask their own clients and they don't really communicate with their clients that much. Um, sometimes the claim will come forward and they'll say, hey, by the way, I'm on Medicare, or they'll let us know. Um, sometimes our opposing counsel will tell us, hey, by the way, my guy's on Medicare. And unfortunately, sometimes they don't tell us this or it doesn't come out until we're already in settlement discussions. I can't tell you how many cases have blown up and we're ready to settle the case for $200,000. And then the person comes forward and goes, oh yeah, by the way, I'm on Medicare and we're gonna probably have to design a set-aside. And that set-aside can oftentimes be um, have much higher exposure value than the actual underlying workers' compensation settlement. And of course, we're always gonna be mindful of the person's age because uh, that could mean a likely entitlement. So. Uh, in that first type of case where uh, Medicare's already paid for treatment, it's our obligation to reimburse Medicare, right? So in the act, it says where Medicare has, has uh, made a payment or payment has been made, it is the responsibility of us, the insurance carrier or employer in the workers' compensation matter to reimburse Medicare. And it's pretty straightforward. Medicare will issue what they call a conditional payment letter. It will list all the payments that they claim uh, should have been paid under the workers' compensation claim. And the way they basically match this up is they use those ICD, those billing codes, to say, wait a second, your workers' compensation claim involves a right shoulder. Here's 25 orthopedic billing codes that we paid that seem to be related to the right shoulder. You should reimburse us for that. Um, Medicare calls these conditional payments, which is why we call them conditional payments. And it's just simply pretty straightforward to go forward and um, you know just make that reimbursement to Medicare. I do think a best practice is to review that conditional payment demand from Medicare and say, wait a second, is this stuff all related? Um, I'm always shocked at the kinds of stuff that Medicare claims is related to the workers' compensation case, like treatment from bronchitis or other things that are clearly not compensable in the workers' compensation matter, so we have to be mindful about that. The second kind of case is that future interest case, right? This is the type two situation where Medicare hasn't made a payment but they might have to in the future if we close our case full and final. And again, when I say full and final, I mean we're closing out medical and indemnity. So medical care is gonna be closed out. There may be a potential that Medicare uh, would be expected to make a payment in the future for that treatment. It's, it's absolutely inappropriate for us to do that. And we have an obligation under the statute to make sure this doesn't happen. And it's a weird scenario because under the statute, it's our obligation as the insurer or the carrier to make sure we don't transfer our responsibility or liability to Medicare. Essentially, this is pure compliance work. Um, it's basically, you're basically paying your defense counsel or your risk professional, your claims administrator or adjuster to, to work on behalf of Medicare. Um, it's basically, a, we're, we've been sh uh, essentially pressed into indentured servitude, and we've got to make sure that Medicare's interest is protected, okay? And it requires us to pretend that we're their attorney and make sure we protect that future interest. Well, how do you protect a future interest? Uh, how do you make sure that Medicare doesn't get uh, zapped with medical bills in the future related to your workers' comp case? Well, there is no single mandatory required way to do this, okay? But the most common way has been for a set-aside arrangement to be made. 
What's a set aside arrangement? It is simply a pile of money set aside for the claimant's or petitioner's future medical care. Okay. Now, again, I'm going to st stress this again. That's the way we do it most of the time is with a set aside. But that's not the only way. And in fact, the statute and the regulations and rules do not require any specific way of, set, of designing or building a set aside. So um, could you go into the market and buy a health insurance policy with a private carrier that covers just your um, injuries, illnesses, conditions, uh, or body parts in your workers' compensation case and say, look, I took care of your future interest med uh, Medicare. I bought them, I went out into the market and bought them a private health insurance policy that just covers these conditions. So they're supposed to use that card. Yeah, that's valid, right? That's one way you could do it. Uh, so I'm just stressing that even though um, the set aside is the way we do this, 99.9% um, .9 of the time, it's not the only way uh, that you can protect Medicare's um, uh, future interest. There's also no requirement, no statutory requirement that Medicare review or approve whatever money you decide to set aside, okay? Um, now, there are some statements from Medicare about what that set aside should contain, and in fact, there is uh, there are guidelines that they've issued, um, and they've said, hey, if you're gonna do the set aside method, you should set aside the medical costs that would be paid by Medicare or the Medicare Advantage plan, if not for the workers' compensation claim. And by the way, you've got to do this for the remainder of their lifetime, okay? Um, but again, uh, how that's structured or what goes in it, uh, there is no statutory requirement. Um, now, the set-aside may contain um, other financial instruments. For example, uh, instead of giving the claimant $100,000 in a, in a sum of money and say, hey, use this for your future medical, you could go out and buy an annuity or a bond or some other financial instrument that would pay them out the value of that uh, proposed or likely medical care over the, for the rest of their life, um, you know, that's certainly something you could do, and we do it all the time. Um, a set-aside may contain a provision or a codicil or an agreement that the uh, set-aside is self-administered, meaning the claimant gets access to those funds immediately and is expected to use them on the honor system for their medical costs only. Again, on the honor system in that self-administered set-aside, right? They're supposed to be using that uh, money for the purposes of only medical care. Now, do they do that? Nah, not always, right? Uh, we've seen situations where the claimant will take that money and just treat it like another pile of money and go out and spend it on a vacation or something like that, which, again, if they embezzle essentially from themselves, or they um, misappropriate that money and use it for purposes they're not supposed to use for, that's not really our challenge because we did what we were supposed to do, which was put the money in their hand and make sure it was there when it was necessary. Um, but that does happen. Now, uh, you could also have a set aside that is professionally administered, meaning you have a third party administrator, uh, a professional entity, which is making sure that that um, money is only being used for medical treatment. So. Uh, all those things are options and those are all available to um, How is future medical estimated under uh, the, the system that's been proposed by the Center for Medicare Services? Well, they've published a reference guide uh, and they have said, okay, if you follow our reference guide, uh, you know, we're going we're gonna to be very happy with this set aside. Um, they've, in over the last two years, have signaled that they're not happy with what are called evidence-based 
versus reference guide methods. Evidence-based products are pricing these set-asides. This is, again, just putting the money aside um, based on uh, usually a um, uh, uh, experience, right? So uh, instead of saying, hey, this person's gonna go and get X amount of MRIs over the next 40 years, saying, you know, it's typical for someone to get one or two more MRIs and not just simply, um, you know, sort of duplicating all the treatment that they've already obtained and presuming that they're gonna get it every year. So evidence-based products are out there in the market and you can get some great vendors who will go and put together for you an evidence-based set-aside allocation. Um, I like these a lot. Uh, generally, they're gonna be a lot lower than using the method that's in the Center for Medicare Services Reference Guide which really is just taking, in a lot of circumstances, the person's current medical care and um, sort of just extrapolating it into the future and then coming up with generally some very high set-asides. Now, set-asides are necessary when the claimant is currently Medicare entitled and the workers' compensation case will end all of our responsibility for future medical. You absolutely need a set-aside if you're going to settle that workers' comp case full and final. So that's just definitely necessary and this is our obligation to obtain it. Um, there's also language um, in both the memorandums that have been issued by Medicare and the statute itself, which indicates that if the claimant is not currently Medicare entitled, but the settlement of your comp case is really large, over $250,000, and we're ending our responsibility for future medical, and the claimant is reasonably expected to be uh, Medicare entitled within the next 30 months, so two and a half years, we should take Medicare's future interest into account as well. And that term, reasonably expected to be on Medicare or Medicare entitled, has been pretty well defined. It means they've applied for Social Security disability benefits, they've been denied benefits but are appealing it, they're in the process of appealing it, so the appealing is already filed, um, or they're 62 and a half, right? So they're going to be likely entitled within the next 30 months or they have one of the specifically enumerated conditions like end-stage renal disease, uh, which would qualify them for Medicare in the future, right? So that's the, the moments when we need to do that. Now, Medicare review thresholds are often confused with our actual Medicare secondary payer obligation, okay? What is a review threshold? Well, a review threshold just says, under certain circumstances, if certain review criteria are met, Medicare will actually review your proposed set-aside and they will bless it, they will accept it, they will issue you a letter that says, hey, you uh, proposed a, uh, a settlement of your workers' comp case, uh, we approve uh, that settlement if the set-aside meets these criteria that you've set out, okay? Entirely optional, there's no requirement uh, that we have Medicare review our cases. And they've set aside, they've, or they've given us some review thresholds, which I'll talk about in the next slide, of what cases they'll actually review, because they're not gonna look at everything. I mean, think about how many of our workers' compensation cases are settled for nuisance value, $5,000, $3,500, $2,500. Medicare doesn't wanna look at all those cases, so they've set some review thresholds. I'm, I'm gonna continue to stress that Medicare review of a set-aside, a proposed set-aside, is entirely optional. There's nothing in the statute that obligates or requires an employer or carrier to do this. However, some of my clients say, Greg, I love it. I love to sleep at night knowing that I had Medicare bless and approve all of my proposed set-asides. So Greg, even though I recognize I don't, I'm not required to do this, 
I want to do it anyway because it makes me feel better, makes me feel more comfortable, okay? That's okay, that's client choice, right? So some of our clients mandate that Medicare approve uh, every set aside that they will review that goes above that review threshold. And that's your option, okay? Um, my position on this, and I'll talk about it in the next couple of slides, is I'm generally against um, submitting for Medicare's approval and review, but if a client wants to do it, you know, we do that, that's, that's fine. Now, there are some review thresholds. The first threshold is if the claimant is currently entitled to Medicare, we can request a review of the proposed settle side, but only if the settlement is over $25,000. And the intention here is, hey, the person's currently on Medicare, so we know there's gonna be some secondary payer obligation if it's, we're closing the case out full and final, meaning medical is closed. But Medicare doesn't wanna look at all these little rinky-dink cases that are settling for nuisance value. And because they don't want to look at all these cases that are settling for nuisance value, uh, Medicare is going to say, wait a second, you have to be settling this case for over $25,000 before we're going to take the time and the administrative workload to look at this case and give you our letter of approving. Okay, so now sometimes, and I see this with practitioners and particularly inexperienced practitioners, and I've had my opposing counsel say this to me, oh, Greg, we're settling this case for 10 grand. We don't have to worry about Medicare in this case. I say, yes, you do. You still have to consider Medicare's secondary payer interest in this case. You just can't submit it to them for them to review it and provide us that approval letter, okay? So this is just a review threshold. It is not a safe harbor, okay? And the second thing is uh, Medicare will review a case where the claimant is not currently entitled to Medicare but has a reasonable expectation of being entitled where the settlement is very large and that that is defined as over $250,000. So the takeaway here is, and the thing that I, I really wanna stress, is that the review threshold is not a safe harbor. I've even had opposing counsel say silly hearted things to me, like we're gonna settle a case for $50,000. And they'll say, how about we do this? We split the settlement to two parts. One's for $24,999, and then we'll settle out the psychiatric component of the case for $24,999. And guess what, Greg? Now we don't have to get medic, we don't have to worry about Medicare set-asides. I say, yes, you still do. They, they're just not gonna review it by you doing these silly hearted things. So just be very thoughtful. Oftentimes it will be opposing counsel that's not really aware of uh, what the obligations are. Um, so we have to do a lot of correction or education for them. Now, you got a lot of options, and I just wanna make sure clients understand what their options are. Um, you can submit a set aside for prior approval, um, yeah, particularly where it's based on reference price, uh, pricing guidelines, so doctor bias. It's gonna be your lowest risk thing that you can do because you'll have a Medicare approval in your hand. Uh, unfortunately, this will usually result in the highest likely exposure because Medicare loves it when you set aside a ton of money uh, they feel safe and insulated when you do that. Unfortunately, it will often lead to the highest exposure to the carrier or the employer. You also have the choice of doing an evidence-based set-aside. Um, and again, it's up to you whether you choose to submit it or non-submit it to Medicare for their approval. And that's your risk on that is going to vary. Uh, it is There is a potential, and I think it is infinitesimal, very small potential uh, that your that Medicare will open up or go back in time and say, oh, you, these, these settlements that were done 15 years ago, um, you didn't take, we didn't, you didn't submit it to us for approval, We've, we're now looking into them. They simply do not have the manpower uh, to do that type of backwards looking investigation. 
So again, I think the risk is pretty low, but again, this is pure compliance work. We have a federal obligation to make sure we're taking Medicare's interest into account. I believe strongly that evidence-based set-aside does that, and again, it's up to the client to choose whether that's a submit or non-submit status. And the last thing you can do um, is not submit uh, at all uh, and not base the set-aside on either the Medicare um, internal reference guidelines or even evidence-based and really just base it on uh, what your best guess is. And oftentimes attorneys are used for this. In fact, there's entire law firms, uh, and I could you know, point out some of the really good ones, uh, that this is all they do is just uh, come up with uh, legal opinions on what the set-aside should be. Um, I think this is a relatively low-risk thing for clients to do because the risk becomes however big the professional malpractice policy is uh, for the vendor or the professional that you're retaining to do it if they have a a, you know, a legal malpractice policy, for example. So those are sort of your options um, out there. Uh, and again, I'm not even exploring the really, um, you know, edge case options. Like, for example, I talked earlier about the potential of, hey, just go out and secure a new health insurance policy for this person or any other way uh, to cover the uh, uh, secondary payer obligation of the employer or carrier. Now, I generally recommend against pre-approval of set-asides because it does introduce some cost and delay into the case. Uh, it also means, um, you know, that you're going to be moving these things a little quick, more quickly, which to me is generally important. Um, uh, we also just will tell you that the great number of lump sum dismissals uh, are under $25,000, right? These are nuisance value cases, and they're really not submitted. We never recommend it. Um, you know, we'll do sort of a evidence-based or legal opinion in regards to what the set-aside should be and really don't see a downside to that. Now, in our practice, our best practice is to make sure we're identifying cases early where Medicare is going to have an impact on these settlements. Uh, there's nothing sadder than settling a really difficult or painful case uh, for a good value and then uh, at the end when you're ready to put that settlement through, uh, adversary coming forward and saying, oh, by the way, my, my person just got entitled to Medicare, and now we're going to have to do a Medicare set-aside, and sometimes the set-asides will be huge uh, and blow up the settlement. So that's very disappointing, and it's not something you want to discover at the end of the case. Let's look into that early. Um, in general, I advise clients I don't recommend getting Medicare-approved set-asides, although many of our clients say, Craig, it's our corporate position, it's our carrier position, we're absolutely, you know, gonna, we want that approved status. And I think you should lean on your defense counsel to sort of give you, the client, um, a very um, nuanced guidance on what your options are and what are the best way forward in your individual case. So uh, at this moment, we're about to switch into our next topic, which is risk transfer. But unfortunately, Medicare um, is something that oftentimes it's seen as relatively complicated and so people don't address it until the end of the case. I think it should be addressed early in the case. Uh, at the end of this presentation, there's going to be plenty of time for questions, so please type in any questions you have about Medicare issues, applications, submission, non-submission. Uh, start typing in your questions now so that when we get to the questions component, I can answer all those questions. All right, our next topic is risk transfer, um, and this is something that is going to positively impact your exposure in a workers' compensation case. Where you have risk transfer, another entity is financially responsible for reimbursing you, which means we get a recovery from them, which means in general, our amount of money that we're gonna be exposed for is going to be reduced, so we're really happy about this. Um, and oftentimes, where the other case, the civil action settles before the comp case, 
you're getting that money reimbursed to you. A common question I get about reimbursement and risk transfer is, Greg, do I still have a risk transfer right, either to reimbursement or subrogation, where I've done a lump sum dismissal pursuant to section 32? That is a lump sum, goodbye, here's your money, go away. The answer is yes, as long as you reserve that right in your section 32 settlement agreement. Okay, so that is possible. We try to do that as a matter of course here. Some basic examples of risk transfer, in, uh, claimant is injured at work in a slip and fall, but it's not on our property, which means the claimant is likely to have a first party action or an action over against the landlord, the property owner, or the maintenance company, or anybody who's involved with um, that uh, property that they actually sustain their injury on. Another great example is motor vehicle accidents. Uh, so many of our employees are out driving about in our vehicles, but they're not the cause of the accident. Um, they will have a cause of action against the motor vehicle uh, policy of whoever the at-fault driver is, uh, which means uh, we would have the right to recovery. Another one is products liability, uh, where the uh, injured worker in your workers' compensation case is, sustains an injury due to faulty or dangerous equipment, uh, equipment that lacked warnings or labels, or maybe the safety equipment was removed, the, the guards, for example, or the tag-out walkouts were removed from uh, a tool or machine. They might have a product liability claim against the manufacturer or maintainer of that equipment. And then, of course, we would have a right of recovery. And the most common places where you see risk transfer are in construction accidents. Uh, my partner, Tashia, oversees our construction defense practice here. And because uh, in New York has um, very specific and weird labor laws, which allow you to directly sue the property owners, uh, if you're injured on a work site, uh, we see a lot of risk transfer in uh, construction accidents. So how do we know if there's an op opportunity? Well, we're looking at the case when it comes in and we're saying, okay, it seems to fall into one of these opportunities here where there would be either an action over or that civil claim that could be brought, so let's go after it. Um, we're also gonna ask our adversary and say, hey, did you guys bring a first party civil suit against anybody? Um, we're gonna check the New York City, um, the, sorry, the New York State court system, which is entirely online so we can check their docketing system. And of course, we're gonna ask the claimant directly at a hearing whenever they're supposed to be present at all hearings so we can ask them, hey, are you suing anybody? Is there a third party claim pending? Have you retained an attorney uh, to bring your plaintiff's case? Subrogation is also allowed under section 29 of the New York Workers' Compensation Law, uh, which allows us to step into the shoes of the claimant and sue any party uh, that they have not sued. So you have a very strong subrogation opportunity in New York. New York's uh, Section 29 is also interesting in that it requires our consent, meaning the employer or the carrier in the workers' compensation action, to any civil uh, case that is derivative of that workplace injury. So that means before they can settle their uh, civil action, they have to come to us first and ask our permission to do so, which is important because A, we're gonna now know that they have the civil action pending, and B, we could say yes or no. And the opportunity to say no is, hey, wait a second, you're not getting enough money in that civil action, it's not gonna fully reimburse me, et cetera, right? So you could step in there and start to get in the driver's seat. Uh, New York also allows for loss transfer, is this applies in motor vehicle accidents uh, involving commercial, act, uh, commercial vehicles um, or vehicles that weigh over 6,500 pounds. There are some exceptions to loss transfer, 
and those exceptions are involving non-motor vehicles, usually construction equipment or motorcycles, particularly in the context of couriers, um, or where the claimant is an uninsured motorist, or involves, I'm sorry, an uninsured motorist. Um, some other exceptions exist, um, but it is important to know that even where the claimant brings a motor vehicle claim, you might have an opportunity for some risk transfer. Now, it is a little complicated in this jurisdiction, and I have a partner, his name is Chris Major, who is the world's greatest expert on this. In fact, he wrote a book called New York Risk Transfer. Um, it's available on our website for download right now, loislc.com forward slash publications. Uh, he really goes into depth and detail about all the different opportunities for either risk transfer, reimbursement, or subrogation, including loss transfer in New York, which can get quite complicated, and provides plenty of examples. And he's really the expert on this. He also leads a monthly webinar on reimbursement, subrogation, and loss transfer. Uh, he calls it the Major Mondays webinar series because his last name is Chris Major. And it's a really interesting uh, webinar that you might want to jump into. It's also available for, as a podcast as well. So we uh, recommend that highly. Okay, let's move on to aggregate trust fund. It, this is a very unique New York idea. Uh, the aggregate trust fund uh, was created allegedly to protect claimants from carriers who go um, belly up and are unable to meet their obligations to pay for permanent residual disability. And the idea here was to protect the injured worker from a carrier who is unable or becomes insolvent uh, and will not make their uh, payments directly to a claimant. Now, it's completely ridiculous that we have this fund because New York also has a liquidation bureau. So, uh, and there are surcharges being paid for that. So uh, it's really was done to um, sort of facilitate the flow of funds into the workers' compensation board itself. In my opinion, it's unnecessary. But what it is, is a trust fund that we are required to make a deposit into of our future exposure with the state of New York. And it is very specific that the after a case is deemed or resolved or uh, adjudged for the claimant to have a permanent partial residual disability, a loss of wagering capacity, or a finding of total disability, the judge in the workers' compensation case can order the carrier to make a payment of all future exposure into the aggregate trust fund. Of course, uh, because uh, New York is uh, a little bit doing some self-dealing here, they exempted themselves uh, from having to make these payments. Now, there are some limitations where a judge is not supposed to order payment into the agri-trust fund where there is a third-party case pending, and the reason for that is because there's a potential for us to get some loss transfer or reimbursement. Um, so those cases are supposed to be exempted. But in many cases involving permanent residual disability or total disability, the judge will make an order directing the carrier to make a payment of all future indemnity payments to the state of New York. Now, what's interesting here is the state of New York doesn't just take those monies, put it in a little lockbox, and then pay that money out to the claimant uh, in the future. Nope. The state of New York will then go and try to directly negotiate with the claimant a lump sum settlement. So you, the carrier, uh, have to make a payment of all your future exposure into the state of New York. They will go and try to lump sum dismiss the case under Section 32, and guess what? The law enabling says that New York gets to keep the difference between whatever you paid them and whatever they actually pay the claimant. And the money that is kept by the fund is used to fund the workers' compensation board. 
So this is a particularly nasty or pernicious little um, area of the law. It's very unique to New York. And the thing that's not great about it is the um, ATF will then, the aggregate trust fund will then go and try to negotiate directly with the claimant. So for that reason, when the judge directs a payment to the aggregate trust fund, uh, generally we're going to want to try to avoid that and try to reach a settlement ourselves with the claimant as soon as possible. All right, the last topic uh, for today is about release and resignations. Uh, and just as a reminder, um, I'm going to be taking questions at the end of this presentation, so please type your questions in uh, so I can answer them live for you today. So what is a release and resignation? Well, it's simply a document uh, where the uh, uh, claimant in the workers' compensation case agrees that at the end of their conclusion of this matter, uh, they are re resigning from their position. Now, the truth is, in many of these cases, by the time the case is settled or by the time we're talking about resignations, they've already been terminated from the employment. So oftentimes, these statements will just say something like, I understand that I am no longer employed there. Really, it's to provide psychological closure uh, in a lot of uh, instances. Uh, we'll also ask for a general release, and we will um, negotiate directly a specific general release. A lot of clients say, look, I want this when that time the case, the workers' compensation case is closed, we want to also negotiate a separate release of any other obligations we might have here. Um, now, these are completely legal. They are allowed to be done under the statute. I'm going to let you determine how enforceable that these are in general. The enforceability of separation agreements is you know, a little bit tenuous in the state of New York, um, but these do have a great um, opportunity for psychological closure here uh, and really has the claimant understanding, hey, I'm done. Uh, this case is closed. My workers' comp case is closed. And also, by the way, I've now received uh, some money uh, in furtherance of that release and resignation. Now, at Lois Law Firm, uh, we always open a separate matter um, for the release and resignations, um, particularly for our insured um, clients. For insured clients, we're going to do a separate engagement and a separate waiver with them. We also, you should know that when we do a release and resignation in this jurisdiction, we have to let the workers' compensation court know we're doing this, okay? Um, so we have to, in the settlement agreement, in the comp case, say, by the way, uh, after we do this settlement in the comp case, we intend on doing a release and resignation as well. Sometimes the judge of compensation will get involved and start trying to dissuade the claimant um, from doing the release and resignation. That's really judge by judge, and it's really pretty rare, actually. Uh, but we do have to reveal this to the Workers' Compensation Board. And this is you know, specifically condoned by the Workers' Compensation Court. There's nothing um, you know, that's untoward about doing this. So that's a little overview of things that we got to think about uh, before we close that workers' comp case. Right? We've got to think about Medicare's interest. We've got to say, hey, wait, did we have a risk transfer opportunity here? Was there an opportunity to reduce exposure? Did we take it? Um, we always want to be mindful of, hey, is, the, is there going to be a direction to pay into the aggregate trust fund? And if so, can we avoid that? And then finally, we're going to think, hey, we're closing our workers' comp case here. Um, should we also do a release and resignation? Is that something that is meaningful or valuable for the client or the insured? And making sure that gets resolved as well. So a little bit of an overview of the things we got to think about. Let me jump in now and take a look at any questions we might have. So I'm hoping there are some good ones. Okay, so far, I have one from Kelly. Just one question. There's a lot of people on this webinar. I'm kind of surprised that there's only one. And she says, Greg, 
are the release and resignations being allowed by the judges? And the answer is yes, absolutely. Um, judges do not have any power to um, disapprove of release and resignation. It's completely separate. That not covered by the workers' compensation law or act. Um, they actually have no power or authority to approve or disapprove a release and resignation. And our only obligation um, is to let them know that we're doing it. In fact, when we do a Section 32 settlement now, and this is, the law's been like this now for about a year and a half, we simply have to check a box and say, yes, uh, we are also doing a separate agreement that's going to resolve any lingering employment issues, and the person is agreeing that they are resigning their employment. So that's absolutely fine. It is condoned by the Workers' Compensation Board. It is legal, and we do it as a matter of course. Um, over the last 20 years, we've done thousands and thousands and thousands of these, and they are still viable. Uh, the only thing that's different or changed or unique or new is about a year and a half ago, uh, the board requires us to reveal that we're doing a another agreement outside of the workers' compensation context. And by the way, you don't have to provide that release and resignation or that release to the board. They, again, they have no authority to review or approve those. Um, Lynn says, Greg, if someone is over 62 and a half, we always need a Medicare set aside um, if the settlement is over $25,000. Um, okay. Mm, no. So you could, that, that, that's definitely something you could do. It's not required. And that's the challenge between that threshold, right? $25,000 is where Medicare will start to review uh, your proposed set-asides, okay? But I do want these to be separate concepts. There's a review threshold, and then there is a uh, obligation. And those two things are completely different. And I do think this is one of those challenges. Um, you know, Medicare has said, and the, the guidance is currently that um, where there's a reasonable expectation to Medicare and the settlement's really big and they're not currently entitled, then they will look at it. That's that review threshold. So again, when you have a case that's close to those edges, that's the time I would probably be asking counsel or your vendor, because the vendors are really wonderful um, resources for this and asking them, hey, do we do you think we need one in this case? And, and by the way, if we need one, should we be getting it pre-approved? And again, that's client by client um, or employer or carrier by carrier as to whether they want to do that or not. All right, I'm looking for some more questions. I don't see any popping in, um, but I had some fun today and I'm hoping that um, some of these topics uh, were useful and were helpful. So uh, next month, join us again for our, our webinar series. Thanks for popping in. If you have any other questions or they sometimes I'm my questions come to me after I've left the webinar I'm thinking later feel free to email me I'm very happy to answer your questions about this or any other topic all right everybody have a great rest of your week enjoy your summer